RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm your host, Renita Malhotrahora. U.S. stocks are slammed by global worries. China uncovers 10 billion U.S. dollars in fake trades. And U.S. President Obama's Attorney General Eric Holder is to resign. Today we'll talk about China's economic slowdown with Jim Walker of Asianomics. Colin Tipping of Friends Provident will also be on hand to discuss where the smart money is flowing. My guest host this morning is Richard Harris of Port Shelter Investment Management. Good morning, Richard. Good morning to you, Renita. Let's take a look at the top stories of the day. U.S. stocks declined with benchmark indices recording their worst session since the end of July. Apple tumbled on its glitches tied to its new smartphone. And as investors considered a proposal in Russia that would let courts seize foreign assets. The CBOE Volatility Index, which is a measure of investor uncertainty, jumped 17.9% to 15.64. The price of gold turned higher and treasuries rallied. Richard, can you run us the numbers overnight so we can get a clearer picture? Yes, so it's a distinctly bearish mood over Overnight, as Apple dropped 3.8%, the iPhone maker contended with problems in its latest version of the operating system, with users complaining that they could not make calls. Uh, Twitter-led declines, but also Microsoft and Intel were off. Going to the numbers themselves, the Dow was off 264 points at 16,945. That's a decline of 1.54%. The S&P was off at 1,966. That's a decline of 1.62%. And the Nasdaq was off 2% at 4,466. Uh, Europe saw declines as well. Uh, the 10-year U.S. Treasury is now yielding 2.5%. On the foreign exchange markets, the euro is currently at uh, well, $1.2752. Uh, the dollar is now at a year high against the euro. It's come off a little bit since then, but it's now at a year high. Um, the dollar is now at a six-year high against the yen at 108.7. Uh, um, and sterling is now uh, $1.63. Uh, uh, that makes it uh, 12 65 to the Hong Kong dollars. Uh, oil is 97 and 5 cents, while gold is at 1000 uh, 222, both pretty flat on the, on the day. And the Nikkei uh, is open. It is down point one, uh, sorry, 1.6% to 16,107. And Australia's ASX index also down three-tenths of a percent to 5,366. Well, yesterday our discussion on this show suggested that Alibaba's listing day might be the very top of the market. Today, lo and behold, the Dow falls 264 points. Richard, what do you think? Are we right on the money or what? Well, uh, we have been saying Jack Ma's a lucky man. Man, um, uh, to pick the top of the market, I think, would be extremely lucky indeed. Uh, no, I think what we're just seeing is uh, uh, Thursday relaxation. You know, very on a Thursday, we do see the markets um, uh, consolidate a little bit and, and recover. And I wouldn't be surprised to see the markets fairly flat overnight. Thursday thing, huh? Well, let me tell you, there is speculation as to whether the U.S. stock markets are in a bubble. Now, Jeremy Siegel, the finance professor at the Wharton School of Business, is not particularly in that camp. How can you call the stock market a bubble when it's selling at 16 and a half times this year's earnings, less than 15 
Times project, projected 2015 earnings. I mean, these are very close to historical standards, and in fact, below historical standards in a low interest rate environment. How can you call that a bubble? David Stockman, who is the former director of the Office of Management and Budget under President Ronald Reagan, however, strongly disagrees. We're not trading at 16 times. That's Wall Street's version of X items earnings outlook for the year. We're actually trading at 20 times the gap reported results for the quarter uh, or the uh, last 12 months ending in June. That's at the top of the range that we've seen time after time historically. And when you get in that that zone, usually there's a large correction. This time, it's even more precarious because we have profit margins at nearly 12% of GDP. The historic average is 8%. We're going to have a mean reversion. We have earnings of $100 a share properly accounted for on GAAP on the S&P 500 that have 5 or $10 worth of cheap interest costs in them that are going to go away. We have earnings in the S&P that are translated uh, out of dollars or from non-dollar currencies into dollars that are going to go the other way as the dollar strengthens uh, against all the other weak currencies in the world that are being trashed by their own central banks. So I would say if you put all this together, plus we're now in month 63 of this expansion and therefore it's due for some kind of correction one of these days. So there we go. We've got the bulls and the bears at it, uh, diametrically opposed. Richard, what are your thoughts? You want me to clear it up? I do want you to clear it up. Well, they're prob- once and for all. They're, they're <laughs> both right. You know, well, I don't think we're in a bubble because bubbles are characterized by irrationality. We're not seeing irrational buying. We're not seeing the market at very high volatility. Uh, so I don't think we're there yet. We can throw numbers at each other, but I don't think we're at the bubble. On the other hand, you know, as I've said before on this show, this is the second most intense bull market. Market on record. And to reach the peaks, uh, if you look at things on a chart, to reach the kind of peaks that we've seen with other big bull markets, we're looking at something like March 2015. So, um, the chances are that the markets will probably go through that point and then we could well be in bubble territory when low interest rates, availability of money is going to keep people buying. Uh, but I don't think we're in that territory yet. So we should watch and take and we shouldn't be concerned about the VIX index jumping up overnight. No, I mean it was down 10% the day before, it was up 20% last night. It is a, a volatile indicator. Well, it's a volatility indicator, mm. of course. So um, so you'd expect it to do that. Uh, I think when the VIX goes goes up to 30 or something, then we're in trouble, but not at the moment. All right. Well, look, let's look at another few news stories this morning closer to home. Uh, The Chinese foreign exchange regulator has uncovered almost 10 billion U.S. dollars of fake foreign exchange trades. Wu Rulin of the uh, State Administration of Foreign Exchange said that this included inflating trades by fake invoicing. Firms could then sneak money out of the country or secure increased financing. It led to unusually high export figures. The cases have been handed over to the police and the regulator said that 50,000 US dollars, uh, which is the annual limit on foreign exchange, remained appropriate. And uh, in the U.S., uh, President Obama's Attorney General, Eric Holder, has announced that he will resign. Mr. Holder is the first African-American to hold the post and has served in the Obama administration since it came into office six years ago. Blake Hounshell, the deputy editor of Politico magazine, was asked what he will be remembered for. 
Well, civil rights is going to be front and center uh, in any conversation about his legacy. He made that clear in his remarks today that he said he's going to carry on the work that he did as attorney general. The Justice Department has been putting out statements to that effect. Um, you know, he sees himself very much as a quote-unquote race man, according to people close to him who've spoken with us. Um, you know, he feels like the Bush administration dropped the ball on civil rights, and he was there to correct it. And he did a lot of things that President Obama wasn't able to do, wasn't able to put himself out front on um, because of the politics. Well, wherever in the world you might be, if you are sitting at your computer or if you're going to be, a word of warning. Scientists say that at least 500 million computers around the world could be at risk from a newly discovered virus. The bug named Shellshock has the potential to make users vulnerable to remote cyber attacks. So how serious of a threat is this? Here's the BBC's technology reporter, Dave Lee. The uh, security community is saying that it's extremely serious. They put it on a scale that's bigger than any, any such attack like this that we've seen before. And the reason being is that the program that it affects is a small piece of software called Bash, which is, has been an integral part of many computers since the late 80s, believe it or not. It's found in so many different places. Many of the web servers in the world use this software. Uh, Mac computers use this software. And computers running the Linux operating system use this software as well. So they say it's very, very serious and that it shows a kind of critical flaw in something that we've used for years and years and years. Hmm, I wonder how you are to know actually that the, the virus shell shock has attacked you or is attacking you. China's industrial economy is slowing. Expectations of a rebound in the near term appear overly optimistic, according to one line of thinking. China's leaders are intent on squeezing the property sector, sector and rooting out corruption. That means fiscal stimulus to help prop up activity isn't necessarily likely in the near term. We're joined now by Jim Walker, founder and managing director of Asianomics Limited. Good morning, Jim. Morning, Renita. Thanks for joining us on Money for Nothing. Mm, pleasure. Jim, last week's uh, $500 billion, uh, sorry, not dollar, $500 billion renminbi injection to the big five banks was looked on as fairly positive by markets. But you say that the banks don't need the money, and this is not to be mistaken for a reversal of the tightness that we've seen in monetary conditions generally in China this year. Can you explain? Yep, um, I think the markets just about clutch onto anything that they see as an easing in China uh, as a reason for getting uh, positive about the market. But the fact is that the, the, the leadership have made it very clear that, uh, uh, that there's going to be a squeeze in the Chinese economy, specifically in the sectors that have been uh, the recipients of huge amounts of credit over the course of the last five years. So the property sector, the, the local governments, state-owned enterprises. Uh, and their strategy this year has been uh, certainly a, along those lines. Overlaid with that is the anti-corruption um, crackdown that uh, is certainly leading the way in China. All of these are actually growth slowing, but they're all centred on debt anyway. The, the, the cause of all of the problems in China is a huge expansion in credit and debt. So therefore, I just don't see any likelihood of this government, which is being quite explicit about what it wants to crack down on, becoming loose on credit and debt again. Jim, the thing I can't quite understand is why the Chinese government are taking this route when you have governments all over the world, QE, reflating the economy through liquidity, monetary policy, and here we are, China, which has this need for growth, not actually doing that. Well, of course, China did it. 
that's the problem. Between 2009 and uh, effectively 2013, China did more in the way of QE, uh, if you like, than any other government on the planet. It was doing more uh, in terms of US dollars injections and liquidity than the US was doing at the the absolute bottom of the crisis. Uh, So China's build-up in credit and debt has been astonishing over the last few years. And although it's not doing QE programs just now, and why should it? I mean, supposedly it's still growing at 7.4%. Why should it be adding any liquidity if it's growing at 7.4%. When you say supposedly, have you got any doubts? <laughs> oh, <laughs> I think everybody's beginning to get doubts. Uh, our view is that the Chinese economy is growing somewhere between 5 and 6%, uh, heading towards a, a 3 to 5% range next year, um, and sign- significantly uh, slower than has been the average over the course of the next few years. So, Jim, can you explain your thoughts behind why you've come to those numbers? I mean, we had the chief economist of the ADB here on the show yesterday. They're very bullish. They're sticking to their target uh, growth rate of 7.5%. Goldman Sachs has just dropped back, but just to 7.1%. Why do you say 5 to 6 this year going to 3 to 5 next year? Well, when have you ever heard the ADB differ from the government <laughs> that it's being paid by to, uh, to, to make forecasts? I mean, this is the biggest problem with multinational agencies. They'll all, in the small print, give you various reasons for why their forecast is wrong. But their forecast is always just exactly the same as the government's forecast. So I I would dismiss the ADB as being uh, a worthless uh, organisation in terms of giving you a forecast of what's going to really happen. Um, Goldman's at least are going in the right direction. But again, remember, these people tend to dance to the tune of the the governments that pay them. And and they're therefore not going to get that far away uh, from government forecasts in case they lose money in terms of IPOs or... Uh, our dealings with the government. How do we get to our numbers? Well, we look at various indicators um, that are not necessarily GDP and industrial production numbers, uh, but the indicators which are telling us that the appetite for the ch- of the Chinese economy for growth. So we're looking at imports into China, we're looking at electricity production, we're looking at tax receipts, we're looking at money supply, and all of them would be telling you the Chinese economy has been slowing substantially. Uh, Can we talk about credit for a moment? Because one of the issues is that very often if you try and clamp down on credit, it doesn't actually go in a straight line. You might actually rebound the other side. We've got the shadow banking sector. We've had all these stories about wealth management products offering 10, 20, 30 percent returns. So there's a lot of it looks as if there's a lot of unstable leverage out there. Is there a possibility we could overshoot? Oh, there's always that possibility. And uh uh, the history of countries is that you always do overshoot. Um, wh- whether governments will produce the numbers to tell you that you've overshot is, uh, is, is a bigger question mark. But uh, I think when we look at the, the, the fact that uh, imports are falling in China, that, that we're looking at uh, in industrial commodity prices off dramatically this year across the world, uh, you look at the oil price below $100 a barrel despite all of the problems in the Middle East, This is telling you how quickly the Chinese economy is slowing down. There is a real danger of overshoot. Some of those, of course, could be quite positive for the Chinese economy, or the oil price, for instance. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, There's always swings and roundabouts in economics, uh, and and what's happening in China just now is not just positive for China, but uh, for emerging markets that are non-commodity producers generally. So one of the biggest beneficiaries from uh, what's happening just now is India. 
But uh, there is also this view that slow Chinese demand for commodities from countries like Australia, New Zealand, Canada is raising concern that those nations will slow as a result, <laughs> weakening their currencies and their relatively high interest rates. What do you think? Yeah, well, um, I do think that some of the, the commodity producers and perhaps particularly Australia are in real trouble. Um, mm. there, there has been a massive mining boom in Australia. It has been the driving force of the Australian economy for the last uh, five to ten years. Uh, and with a, a very, very stretched housing market at the same time uh, as, as that boom, it, it's uh, particularly vulnerable to a slowdown in economic activity. Richard, where do, you, yeah, where do you sit on the idea that everybody says, especially the teenage scribblers from overseas, they say, oh, well, look at China, we're moving into a much more consumer-based economy, and the consumer-based economy is going to take over the export-based economy. Where do you lie on that spectrum? Well, I, I think that's interesting, actually, and they... Uh, that there would be certainly more action at the governmental level um, in terms of policy action if it weren't for the fact that the services sector in China is actually booming. Now, I think that's got uh, as much to do with the fact that there has been deregulation and uh, reduced requirements to set up companies. But it's also the case that as the economy has become more connected, services have become a much more significant part of it uh, and are going to be growing relative to the rest of the economy, I think, going forward. So I don't think it's consumption so much that uh, is the driving force of the economy. It's the profitability of the service industries which then become uh, a driving force for economic growth in China. It's going to be a very different pattern of growth in China over the next decade than we've seen over the last decade. The years of resource intensity, I would uh, argue, are completely finished. Something to wait, watch and see. Well, certainly I'll be uh, curious to know what that is and how it turns out. We'll be talking more about asset management soon. Uh, Jim, I'd like to thank you for joining us today. Jim Pleasure. Walker is the founder and MD of Asianomics. And uh, like I said, we'll be talking more about asset management soon. That is right after this message. The Ebola virus spreads through direct contact with the blood or bodily fluids of infected persons via broken skin or mucous membranes. It is not spread through the air or by food or water. To prevent infection, good hand hygiene is essential. Wash your hands frequently with soap and water, especially before touching your eyes, nose and mouth. Wounds should be disinfected and covered properly. For details, visit www.chp.gov.hk. Well, money talks, but it hasn't been the easiest time to be an asset manager. Getting a read on trends has proved to be challenging amid a backdrop of anemic global anemic economic growth and unorthodox easing by these global central banks. And now an expected rise in U.S. interest rates as the Fed winds down its QE program. Just adds to the dynamic, doesn't it? Hugh Hendry of Electica Asset Management is out with his latest fund manager commentary. And he writes, when central banks are actively pursuing a goal of higher prices, the most rational course is, of course, to tenaciously remain invested in equities. So to discuss this, we're joined now by Colin Tipping, the CIO of Friends Provident. Good morning, Colin. Good morning. And we're also joined by our producer, Chris Oliver. So, Colin, what do you make of the strategy of Hugh Henry? Um, I tend to agree with Hugh uh, on, on a relative basis. Uh, 
despite the kind of short-term volatility we've been getting, uh, the economic backdrop, I think, remains still pretty positive for, for equities. Yes, you do have the short-term blips, as we've seen overnight, but in the kind of time scale that investors need to be thinking about with respect to equities, uh, some level of inflation is usually historically pretty good for equities. Um, you do have to be selective. I think that's a key issue. Chris? Yes, uh, good morning. Uh, I think it's a fairly famous call by Hugh Henry. He uh, switched from the bearish camp uh, to the bullish camp uh, in December last year, and then he's out with his latest uh, uh, fund uh, uh, performance numbers, and they're not good. Are are you kind of concerned as you look at some of these uh, professional fund managers that they've just been on the wrong side of the market and they don't really know what's going on any better than anyone else? That's a good question. I think you do need to be a little careful looking at one specific type of strategy. Uh, you know, he's a great manager and he's very experienced and I'm sure he'll be patient. Uh, the way you're taking exposure to some of these asset classes is really important. And uh, I think particularly if you're looking at some leverage type of play, perhaps as, as Hugh is, then uh, that's something to think about. Uh, Timing markets, calling markets is notoriously difficult. Uh, investors really need to be trying to separate themselves, I think, from the very short-term vol that they've got. You're always going to have managers on both sides. You know, that's the nature of markets. So just continuing that thought, I, I know that you track what we what is, what is known as the smart money, which means mm-hmm. professional money of uh, hedge fund managers and whatnot. So what are they doing these days that uh, strikes you as interesting? So we spend a lot of time uh, at FPI looking at where what we call the smart money is going, and that will be the uh, you know what's happening on derivatives desks, what's happening in the exchange traded products markets, uh, hedge fund managers, the, the professional managers, if you like, in the main because they do tend to be ahead of the retail money. Uh, so I think what we're trying to do here is to look at where that money's flowing. Emerging markets, ex-commodities, as Jim was pointing out, have bounced back very strongly in terms of flow. We saw money flowing out last year. We're seeing developed Asian uh, equities uh, seeing strong flows again. And when you do get these short-term volatility spikes, you see U.S. Treasuries. So uh, what we would expect at this stage of the cycle... I, I remember a few years back it was capital preservation funds uh, were all the rage. And suddenly, uh, I know you and I, we sort of did a brief uh, yesterday, but, and you mentioned from your re- recent trip to Singapore, suddenly capital preservation is back in fashion. What, what's going on with that? Uh, definitely uh, what we are seeing that uh, despite uh, provident schemes and employer-sponsored schemes being around for some time, uh, more and more investors, particularly in the expatriate community, are making additional uh, personal pension provision, if you like. Protecting the asset growth, I think, is something that's uh, been talked about for some time. Uh, Creating the means to do that uh, is a key theme we're seeing in the markets. Uh, We're seeing a lot of attention to uh, volatility control mechanisms, if you like, uh, ways of managing that downside risk, trying to give investors some degree of comfort, some certainty of outcome. It's really about protecting that income uh, in retirement rather than maximizing the growth. And that's the big thing that we're seeing, certainly. So people have become a little bit more cautious than they were. Yeah, this is a good point that you bring up because, uh, you know, while everybody is certainly interested in capital preservation, there's not a lot of transparency that they have when it comes to funds. Can, can you tell us a little bit more about that and the kind of due diligence measures perhaps that you take or that funds take? 
Again, I think this goes back to my point of being selective early on. Uh, there have been a number of products around over the years with very high headline uh, promised rates, so to speak. We spend a lot of time uh, looking under the bonnet, uh, ensuring we understand if a particular headline rate is being uh, promised uh, or anticipated, exactly how is the manager going to get there. Uh, personally, I don't like... Uh, very non-transparent types of products. We need to be very clear on how the manager is actually getting there, and we like to keep it simple. Uh, too much complexity generally means that there's something that is really very unclear and difficult to manage, and generally will go wrong in the kind, wrong kind of market conditions. Colin, how do you do your asset allocation? Because looking at funds and doing due diligence is one thing, mm -hmm. but the clever thing is actually putting them together in that magical formula to build a portfolio. Um, do you have any particular models, or what do you do to say we have this much in the US, this much in Europe, etc.? Sure. We, we, we tend to crunch the numbers quite a lot, Richard. Uh, we are very concerned about the, uh, the riskiness, the volatility that can creep into a portfolio. Uh, you know, we will generally take a view from a top-down perspective. We'll take a lot of views from uh, a wide range of external sources. Uh, we have an open architect architecture model, uh, which gives us access to a lot of really uh, good investment brands out in the market. So we will start from the point of view of what is the customer's appetite for risk. Uh, we're seeing a lot of risk profile products uh, becoming very popular. What is the maximum downside that a customer can sustain or absorb? And we tend to build from the bottom up in that respect, whilst taking a view of what's going on in markets. We do hold for the long term. We don't try to time markets. Uh, we really don't see that that is uh, a way to make money for customers. You know, there's some really good evidence out there that if you're trading frequently in the market, then you will suffer versus a buy and hold strategy. So I, I, I know that you... Uh manage large uh, funds for uh, insur insurance companies yourself. Your own company is an insurance firm. Mm -hmm. But for someone that's listening to the program, what, what strikes you as an interesting investment at the moment? Uh, there are a number of areas out there at the moment. Uh, again, I think you have to be very clear on what your objective is. If you're seeking capital protection, if you're seeking income or a growing income, then that will tend to drive you into certain asset classes. Uh, we're seeing interesting ideas in the alternative space. We're seeing new ideas around areas like water, forestry, clean energy. Yes, these are longer, terms, uh, longer term investments. Uh, we're also seeing customers... I think moving away from property, certainly in Europe, we see property is overbought at the moment. Uh, yields are compressing quite dramatically uh, as investors are, in our view, overpaying for some of these physical assets. Uh, developed equities remains a key play for most customers. Uh, you know, you need to remain long-term investor into that. What we are seeing mostly, though, is uh, investors looking for a diversified uh, return. So it's different sources of return, different sources of risk combining into a single portfolio. Thank Such you, Colin. Thank mm -hmm. you. It's, it's great stuff, really interesting. Unfortunately, we're out of time. Okay. Uh, that's Colin Tipping, the CIO, uh, CIO of Friends Provident. Quick look at the numbers before we close the show. The Nikkei and uh, the Australian ASX index are both down 1%. The Nikkei is at 16,192. The ASX is at 5,325. Seoul's Cosby index also down half a percent to 2,022. In currencies, one euro will buy you 1.27 US dollars, one US dollar will buy you 108 yen, and one Great Britain pound will buy you 12.66 Hong Kong dollars. Quick look at the weather forecast for this afternoon. Today will be mainly cloudy with isolated showers, sunny intervals with some haze during the day. 
The maximum temperature will be about 31 degrees with light to moderate easterly winds. The temperature now is 27 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 77%. This is Money for Nothing. I'm Renita Malhotra Hora and it's now time for the news on the half hour with Samantha Butler. About 80 university students and supporters are camped outside Government House, where they say they intend to confront the chief executive, C.Y. Leung, when he leaves this morning. This follows a protest march of thousands after Mr. Leung refused to meet them yesterday to hear their demands for universal suffrage, which include allowing the public to nominate chief executive candidates and for the National People's Congress to retract its restrictions on political reform here. One of the protesters, Alex Chow, from the Federation of Students, told RTHK this this morning, there's a possibility they'll extend their week-long boycott of classes. We would say uh, that's one of the options because the whole action of the strike is to awaken more Hong Kong people. So up till now, we have done certain extent to awaken more Hong Kong people. So as to arouse their awareness and to give back hope that if we really stand up and speak up, then there's hope ahead. Pupils from over 100 secondary schools will be joining the class boycott for one day today. The United States has said it's too early to say if the coalition it's leading is winning the fight against Islamic State militants. A Pentagon spokesman, Rear Admiral John Kirby, 